All right, well, hey, good morning, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all in the Lord's house on His day, right? His day more, way than, more ways than one. Not only do we get to celebrate His birth, we get to celebrate His resurrection by being here on the, in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Um, so there's four Gospels, and they're not redundant. It's like showing up at the scene of an accident, and there's four witnesses. And the police officer says, so what happened? And the guy says, well, the red truck hit the blue truck. And you ask another person, what happened? So, well, the Ford hit the Chevy. Another person says, well, the, the teenage driver hit the older adult driver. And are, are these stories contradicting? No, they're giving you details from different perspectives based on different audiences. And so we see that Mark writes about the life of Christ as he's the suffering servant. Luke talks about him being the sacrificial savior. John talks about him being the son of God. And Matthew, where we're going to spend our time this morning, talks about Jesus being the sovereign king. Jesus born the sovereign king. So what we're going to do is trace the roots of Christ the newborn king through his genealogy. And one thing we know about genealogies is they're not boring. We used to think they're boring. Of course, I've tried to show you over the last several months how there's so many things that are hidden in the genealogies for us to understand. And we're going to see that yet again today. And, you know, about a month ago when I knew, obviously, that Christmas would fall on a Sunday, I was thinking, will I be at the right place in Genesis to maybe where I can kind of overlap with the Christmas theme? Should I worry about that? Should I stay with Genesis? Should I just put Genesis on pause and teach just a flat-out Christmas message? And sure enough, once again, God and His sovereignty merged the two together because just as last week we talked about the promise of Abraham, talking about someday he would raise up a Messiah through Abraham's seed and he'd be a blessing to all the world. This is where we leave off. It's, it's right here in the genealogy. So we won't be in Genesis, but we're going to talk about, dig deeper what Genesis was promising to Abraham. So what I want you to do as I'm reading, I want you to watch for the names that you recognize in the genealogy. You won't recognize all of them. I don't even recognize all of them. And so, but let that be like a, a hyperlink back to what you know about those stories. So when you see Abraham, you go, oh yeah, we just talked about him recently. When you see other names, think about what's behind that story as I read the names to you. So in Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son, which in this case means the descendant of David, the son or descendant of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, see, Hispanics are in the Bible right there, there you go. And Zerah by Tamar, remember that story? And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. By the way, I got a plumber named Ram came this morning and fixed the pipe for us so we could have church this morning. We had a pipe burst. And it was connected there. And so, Ram, if you're watching, thank you so much. God bless you for doing that on Christmas morning. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, that sounds familiar, right? By Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, 
And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, one of the few very good kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations... From Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the, Bab- to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the do- de- deportation from Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's been said that God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line. And that's what you're going to see in this story. God's going to take several crooked sticks, flawed, sinful, imperfect people, but make a clear path from Abraham to Jesus, showing that he is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham and that he truly is the Messiah. And this is really the theme of today, that even though your life is messed up and you got things that are really crooked in your life, God can still use you to draw a straight line from people's lostness to Christ as their Savior. So we're going to trace the roots of this straight line of Christ the newborn King. And I'm going to we're going to divide it into four, three, two, one, okay? Four social outcasts, three eras of failure, two sinful men, and one ordinary girl. So let's start with this one ordinary girl. So I'm sorry, the four social outcasts, sorry. All right, see those four names there that are highlighted? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. And by the way, it's interesting that it leaves out the name. Because what he wants you to know is her story more than her name. And what is the name of the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba, yeah. So here's four women who had really shattered pasts, who really had a lot of wrong things happen in their life. And just the fact that they're mentioning women in the genealogy is not normally done. Usually in a patriarchal society, all they named was the men. But Jesus and God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is breaking with tradition and showing that women's lives matter and that even women's broken lives can be used of God and God can use every, everybody and anybody. The first that's mentioned here is Tamar. Now, Tamar has a really shady story. She was supposed to have a son and there, her husband would not give her a son and it was probably it was more due to her father-in-law. So she thought, okay, I'll, I'll show them. And so... She baited, she played the role of a prostitute, and she baited Judah into uh, spending time with her, and then she conceived through that. It was a really shady operation here. She was a Canaanite, so she wasn't even in the line of Israel or one of God's chosen people, but she also used deception as she disguised herself, and she used prostitution, and she used incest, all this to bring it about a really shady situation, but guess what? God used it. You think, wow, 
God could use that for the line of Messiah? Yes, he can use anything and anybody, and he's willing to. And God can use, shows his sovereignty in all these situations. And God can use your failures of the past, even your very strong, willful failures, which we all have. I mean, there's, there's times we're like, oh, man, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. And there's other times we're like, I know full well what I'm doing, and I'm doing it anyway. And, that, and that's what Tamar was doing. She knew what she was doing wrong. She, she plotted the whole plan. And yet God says in Romans 8, 28, that he uses all things to work together for good to those who love God according to his purposes, okay? So God can use your past mistakes, even your sinful, willful sinful things, and use that for his good. Another person mentioned this list is Rahab. Now, Rahab was, was a prostitute just by lifestyle, and she was a Gentile. She, what city did Rahab live in? Jericho, right? She lived in Jericho. Remember the walls came tumbling down? Okay. And so she actually lived like a lot of people did where her house was built into the wall. And so the spies came into the land, but then they figured out some people, the officials figured out that they were there. So they ran and hid. They went into the home of a prostitute and they hid there. And God led them to her house because she was seeing how God was working through Israel and all the miracles he was using to them. And she's like, I know that your God is the true God. Do this for me. You know, I will hide you here, but let me and my family live. And they said, sure, take a, 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 a scarlet cord, a rope, that would be like the color that she's wearing right there, and hang it out your window and tie it there, and we'll know that we're going to destroy everything here except for your house right here with this scarlet cord, which was a picture of the of Christ and his blood shed for us at being a covering. And so I'm not sure about this, but when the walls came tumbling down, I kind of picture that section still standing. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but somehow in the rubble of everything, they knew that uh, Rahab lived there and they spared her life as a Gentile. She, up until this point, she worshiped pagan gods and she was a prostitute, but she repented of all this except that Jehovah God is the true living God and the salvation that he provided and she became part of Israel and she became part of the line that led to your Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Another story where someone is not so willfully, maybe not as horrible as a lifestyle, but still nonetheless a pagan. She doesn't know Christ or Jehovah God at all. She's a widow. Her Israelite husband dies. And she says to her mother-in-law, you know, I want to go back with you. And she's like, no, you daughters stay here. One of the daughters did stay, but Ruth wanted to stay faithful to her mother-in-law. She came back, and she, even though she was a pagan, she eventually she converted to the true God of Israel. But she had no right to marry any Israelite. But Boaz found favor in her, and he gave her grace, and he loved her. And he was a picture of Christ loving his church, and he brought her into Israel, and she worshiped the true God, and she became part of the lineage. In fact, she will lead you directly to King David. Then there's Bathsheba. We know her story. We don't know, because of the silence of Scripture, we don't know how much of a willful part she played in this, but King David, when he should have been out leading the troops in battle, he decided to stay home and we kind of picture he probably slept in, he's bored, he's, he's up on the palace, he's looking down over the city, and she's not doing anything wrong. It says she's bathing, but that was common practice to be bathing in your own backyard with fences this high. But the king has a, va a vantage point that he can see over people's fences, and so 
she's bathing there. He lusts after her. Instead of averting his eyes and walking away and getting, making himself busy with something else, he looked, he lusted, he sent someone for her to get her, bring her here. And, the, and he's like, who is this woman? He's like, well, this is Uriah, one of the guys who's out there fighting for you in battle, putting his life on the line. That, that's whose wife it is. Take a hint here, David. But does he? No. With our own lust, we, became, we become very blind and we become very selfish and selfishness makes us, have, make, makes us make poor decisions. And so he brings her in, he lies with her. Again, we don't see anywhere where she objects, but we don't see anywhere where she could have. We don't know. We'll give her the benefit of doubt on all this, but God, even though she was involved in this adultery she, and her, her husband was murdered and all these bad things are happening, and then the baby that's conceived dies. What a sad, tragic situation. Again, we don't know what part she played in all this, how willful she went along with it, whatever, but God can take your brokenness and turn it into something beautiful. So we see these, these four people whose lives are broken, and yet God uses all of them to lead us to Christ. So th- uh, there's these four social outcasts. Isaiah 61.3 says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. When God in his sovereignty allows you to go through difficult, super hard times, even many of them that are caused by your own foolishness, he can use it. But what does he want to use it for? Just to make you better so you can live your best life now? That's not what it's about. He does it so that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. You know, we all know uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you save through what? Faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then it says why? It's not of works. It's not about you being good. And then it says lest any man should boast or any man should brag or glorify himself. You see, if you go to heaven based on how good of a person you are, like, you know, God brings out these scales, supposedly, people say, and of course that's not true, and he weighs your good works and your bad works, and if your good works outweigh your bad, which, by the way, none of us would, it, the scale for all of us would be this way, okay? But somehow in the preponderance of evidence, God says, oh, look at that, you've got a few more good, you know, you, you sold some more Girl Scout cookies and you did steal some, so here we go, you get to go to heaven, Guess what? When we get to heaven, you know who we're excited about? Me. Look what I did. I accomplished this. I, I, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, and here I am in heaven because I was better than the millions who were not. And that's not the way it's going to be. The way it's going to be is like, man, I failed in this way, and I failed in this way, and I knew better, and I did this anyway, and I did this. And how could Jesus love me in spite of all that? I do not know. Isn't Jesus amazing? That's what heaven is about, that, all, that he may be glorified. In all of these ladies' situations, they look at this and say, how could God use me? How could God use any of this? And so when you're in the midst of a difficult situation and you're asking yourself, why, God? Why would you allow this? Look at these ladies. If God can redeem their situation, he can redeem yours for his glory. So... Um, and there we go. If God could use these four social outcasts, God can use you. Don't let Satan deceive you into thinking otherwise. So we go from these four outcasts to three eras of, of failure, three 
lengths of time where there's nothing but human failure. He talks about from Abraham to, Je- to David are 14 generations. Now, there's all different things you could read into this 14. It's interesting if you assign a numerical value to David's name, it's, it comes out to, four, to 42. And so you got 14, 14, 14, which adds up to 42. There's all different ways you could do this. In fact, some of these don't come out exactly to 14 because he purposely skips like Jehoiakim, which was a puppet king, so he doesn't count him. And so it, one of them actually adds up to 13, but he did that on purpose. And David is counted in some of the lists twice, as you'll see here. And so, but it's more of a poetical device, show, but showing how these hundreds of years pass from Abraham to David, and then from David to the carrying away into Babylon. You see, God had raised up Israel to be a mighty nation, and under King Solomon, it reached its apex. And they were a world empire, and nations from the world were coming to them saying, man, what are you doing here? It's so amazing. And kings and queens would come and visit Solomon and bring him gifts. And it all happened just because they were following God's commands and doing things God's way, not because they were conquering everybody, like the Roman Empire. They weren't subjugating anybody else. They weren't taxing everybody else. They were just ruling with, with righteousness and with power. And then it all started to crumble after that. And God said, because of your disobedience, I'm going to have Babylon come and invade you and carry away your sons and daughters into captivity. And so you see from the apex, from the peak, from David and Solomon, all the way down to it crumbles down. And then you have the carrying away into Babylon to Christ. So it went from this dark time to Jesus, and the Israel was ready for a redeemer. So you have this great leaders, Abraham, David, and lots of disappointment. As we learned last week, Abraham's faithful to God, but yet then he has his failures, right? Remember his lie about Sarah? He said, well, hey, so they don't kill me. Tell them you're my sister and all that. And he, he, he messes up several times. And, of course, we know David's major failures. So great leaders who bring disappointment. I'm, I'm like, I love history. I love American history. If you do a detailed study of American presidents, we don't have many good ones. <laughs> you know, it's just like everyone has their major, major flaws. Every single one of them. And it just, like, you would think someday we'd have a really, really good godly president. I don't think it's ever going to happen. You know, I mean, you can pick your favorite, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, whoever you want to pick. All of them have their major flaws. And that's just not America. We, I'm not trying to be America bashing like all the other political correctness going on today. I'm saying you go to any country. In fact, America's probably better than the rest of the world. You, if you go down to these banana republics, it's all bought and sold dictatorship. Whoever has the most money and the most guns becomes the dictator. You know? And it's really sad, and the corruption that goes on there is 10 times worse than what we have here. You know, I mean, what's going on right now in Ukraine? We all want to say, oh, I support Ukraine, I support Ukraine. Yeah, maybe you should, but it's not all. It's really one dictator fighting another bigger dictator over power and control and over weapons and all kinds of things like that. And so it's really ugly wherever you go. And so you think, oh, Abraham, he's amazing. Oh, no, he failed. David, yeah, he's amazing. Oh, he failed. You know, and you see this leaders who lead to nothing but disappointment. And then God says, you know what? You guys can't be, all your kings stink, you know. And with the exception of Hezekiah, all the kings were failures after David and Solomon. And those two guys didn't do great. And so the kingdom goes into decline, decline, decline. And then the kingdom splits in the north and south. And eventually both of them are carried away into captivity. And there's a great time of darkness. 
Then we come to two sinful men's, two sinful men's, <laughs> two sinful men. You've got Jesus being the son of David, which means he has the right to the throne, and David and Jesus being the son or the descendant of Abraham, which means he has the bi- biological right to the promise. So that's why these two major characters are named, and both of them are found in the genealogy of Jesus. You look at the life of King David. Again, he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. That's what he did to Uriah. And that's why the passage says the wife of Uriah doesn't mention her by name because they don't want you to forget the story about how all this came about. That he's a murderer and he's a polygamist. He has hundreds of wives. And he's done all kinds of things to compromise. And yet God says he's the apple of my eye. And don't take that as he condones all your sin. He doesn't. God loves you. Yes, it's true that God loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you that way. So whatever your struggling, besetting sin is, God's not saying, well, that's just the way I am. Maybe you got a temper and you can say, well, that's just me. You have to deal with it. No, that is just you, but he wants to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants you to, whether you struggle with anger, with lust, with greed, with selfishness, with lying, whatever your fault is, which we all have many, what, what, even what your major one is, you want to see victory year after year where that is declining, 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 and the glory of Christ is increasing, increasing, and increasing. That's what sanctification is. It's not something that happens all at once. It is a process. Salvation happens all at once. Sanctification is a long, drawn-out process that you will do until the day you die. And David struggled with all these things, and he's also, he's a horrible dad, <laughs> I mean, he does not have the courage to speak up for any of his kids or to punish them for doing anything wrong, and his kids just run hog wild, as they say in East Texas. He, he's a, not a good dad, and yet it calls him that the, the Jesus is the ancestor of this guy. Again, what God is doing is taking a crooked st- stick and drawing a straight line. The other uh, ancestor here is Abraham, and we've learned about him recently. He was cowardly. He didn't want to stand up to the Egyptians. He shouldn't even have gone there in the first place. But he says, hey, I don't want to die, and this is all about me, so why don't you lie and say you're my sister? So he's cowardly. He's also very selfish in the decisions he makes, not all the time, but most of the time. And he dishonored Sarah through this whole process, put her life and her purity at risk, which put the whole genealogy of Jesus at risk, because had she stayed in Pharaoh's harem, that would have messed up the whole line, but God stepped in and sent a plague, as we learned last week. So he not only dishonored Sarah, he dishonored God through the whole process. And you say, well, how could God use anybody like Abraham? The same way he uses Gary, the same way he uses you, the same way he uses all of us. God is trying to show that we're all messed up and that he's the one that's perfect, and yet God can still choose to use us. Paul can look at these two guys and say, I can relate to that. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, and he was one who, he says, of, of all the, the sinners, I am the chief of sinners. Philippians 3.13 says, one, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and we could park there for a while. How many of you wake up in the morning and, and just have a random thought of something you did stupid years ago, decades ago? It's like, where did that thought come from? You know, well, your brain works in funny ways, and maybe your emotions are still trying to reconcile it, but you also have an enemy, and his name is Satan, and he has a way of whispering things in your ear to remind you of how much you've failed. And Paul says, you just have to forget about it. It's in the past, it's under the blood, 
God says it's, it's forgiven. Jesus hung on the cross and said, totalistai, which means it's finished. It means the debt is paid in full. I paid for that. Quit thinking about it. Learn from it. Move, it, move on. He says, I forget the things that lie behind, and I strain. It's an effort. It is work to press forward to what lies ahead. It, it's never going to be easy until the day you die and you're with Jesus, okay? It is straining every day to focus on what lies ahead. And like the old saying goes, that's why your rearview mirror is this big and your windshield is this big because your eyes are supposed to be forward. You only look in the rearview mirror to learn from your past, not to wallow in it. If God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You say, well, Gary, what, what if I can't forgive myself? And that sounds so pious, but really what that is, is arrogant. God's saying, look, my court has declared you not guilty. You say, but yeah, but God, but my court says I still am. So now you're saying you're a greater judge than God is? We need to repent of our arrogance and realize if God says you're forgiven, that's it. Case closed. So let's continue to trace the roots of this newborn king. We see that there was four social outcasts, three eras of failure, two sinful men, and then that brings us to one ordinary girl. Her name is Mary. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up Catholic, and the Catholic Church tends to exalt Mary way above what she should be, okay? She is not sinless, okay? As we'll see here in a second, she needed a Savior. But sometimes we as non-Catholics, I won't use the word Protestant because we're actually not Protestant either, um, we tend to diminish Mary. And we have to realize, wait a minute, of all women, she was the most highly favored, and she was a very godly young lady who loved the Lord, and that is why she was chosen. So there's a balance there in what we should think of Jesus, and he is called the Christ, and she's, she's the one that God used. And it says that, and Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be. That's not just a great Beatles song. This is a great statement. Let it be to me, according to your word. Now, you could, we tend to read the Bible and just gloss through that and say, well, that's really neat. Mary said that. Understand that what's all on the line for this 15, 16-year-old girl, we don't know exactly how old she is, which she shows amazing wisdom and maturity beyond her years. But by being pregnant, and it's not through any fault of her own, it's not a problem, okay? It's, it's a pregnancy, a beautiful pregnancy that God has conceived in her through the power of the Holy Spirit, Okay? But the world is not going to look at it that way. Everybody's going to say either you were unfaithful to Joseph or you and Joseph were unfaithful to God. Somebody's being immoral here somehow, and that's the label that she would wear for the rest of her life. And she's like, let it be. If this is what comes, if this is the label I must bear in order to be faithful servant to God, then so be it. You do what you need to do, God. Let it be according to your word. This also not only means that she would lose her reputation, she'd very, she doesn't know right now, I mean, that's going to change, but she is thinking, I'm going to lose Joseph. And Joseph had plans to divorce her. Now, he was going to be pretty cool about it and divorce her quietly instead of making a, a public scene, which he could have done. He could have posted her name right there on downtown walls where people would see all the public records and say, oh, look, she committed adultery, you know. He could have done all that, but he said, no, I'm not going to do that. 
but he had plans to leave her. The, the love of her life was going to go, and she did nothing wrong. And she says to God, let it be, if this is what you want. This means it's going to cost her economically. That means she'd probably be a single mom for the rest of her life in a culture where there is no welfare or Social Security, where it leads to begging and worse. Okay, She's willing to accept all those consequences, to live in poverty, to lose the love of her life, to lose her reputation, and all that the list could go on and on and on of things that she was willing to. And yet she doesn't just like, all right, bring it on, God. No, she's like, I'm blessed. And she realizes this when she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and then they rejoice in the whole situation. And yet from an outsider looking in, this looks like a horrible situation. And she's like, hey, this is here I am in the center of God's will. So don't let people teach you that the Bible says when you're in the center of God's will, everything is awesome. It's health, wealth, and prosperity, and everything is great. Here is a young lady who in the middle of God's will, and it couldn't be any tougher. And yet she says, if this is what you want, Lord, so be it. Let it be. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She praises God. Does this sound familiar? This is like Job who lost everything. And it says, the Lord, Job blessed the Lord. It said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And she's like, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices. Wow. All look at this. this. Mary, you're pregnant. You're going to go through some of the worst pain you've ever experienced in your life. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're probably going to lose your fiance. You're probably going to be economically distressed for the rest of your life. Praise God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And then she says, she rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, you don't need a Savior unless you're a sinner. And so teaching that Mary was sinless, and like, you've heard the phrase, the immaculate conception. Did you know that's not referring to Jesus? That's referring to her? That she was conceived immaculately so she could be sinless to give birth to Christ. But that's not what the Bible teaches all. It teaches that Mary, even though she was a wonderful young lady, a godly young lady, she was still a sinner like you and me. And she needed a Savior, and she rejoiced at that she found that Savior. So you can identify with any or all of these, right? Four social outcasts. All the brokenness and God uses. Three errors of failure. I mean, we, we are living in an era of failure, and, and it's going to get worse. And we keep looking to maybe politics or voting for the right person to change the world. It's not going to happen. And Jesus came from the two most prominent men of Israel's history, Abraham and David, and yet those two were failures. And yet God can take one ordinary girl and bring the Messiah through all this tragedy, through all this failure, through all this decline. All, all of it through Jesus, our newborn king. That's what Christmas is about. It is the incarnation that God looked down and said, guess what? Governments, you're not going to solve it. Kings, you guys aren't going to solve it. Godly men and leaders and priests, prophets, you're not going to solve it. You ever said this? If you want the job right, what do you have to do? Do it yourself. And that's what God says, okay, I'm going to have to come down and do it myself. I'm going to be the prophet, the perfect prophet. I'm going to be the perfect king. I'm going to be the perfect priest. All where these prophets, priests, and kings all fail, I'll go ahead and I'll become the perfect human being. Where Adam had failed, I'll be the second Adam who will succeed and I'll bring salvation to the world. And Paul looks at this and says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Words cannot describe what the incarnation means that God would send his only son in human flesh to become one of us, to live a perfect life, to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and then 
to die the perfect sacrifice. This is the baby who was born to die. Um, you know, have you ever gotten a gift that kind of offended you? <laughs> you know, what if someone gave you for Christmas how to lose weight for idiots, right? <laughs> yeah, some of us need that, right? Okay, you like, what are you trying to say? Or what if they gave you this book right here? Um, how you could be a better friend. <laughs> I'm not a good friend. <laughs> I think it's fine. You know, in order to accept these gifts and to really have them change your life, what do you have to do? You have to let it offend you and say, yeah, you're right. I am out of shape. Yeah, I am not a very good friend or whatever it may be. Some gifts actually offend us, and most of us avoid trying to give those gifts, and, and you should. But God gave us a gift that, you know what, offends. It says, you're a sinner. You are, your life is messed up. And you are way more sinful than you ever realize. And that, that's what a lot, of, a lot of preaching doesn't include today. We, don't, we leave out sin. We don't want to deal with the negative. We just want to keep it positive. And, the, and it's just like a doctor who doesn't have the courage to tell you you're at stage three cancer. He needs to hurt your feelings and say, hey, you're, you're in trouble. And yeah, it's because you smoke too much or you ate too much sugar or whatever. But that's all in the past now. I have a cure for you. Will you admit that you have a problem and let me operate? And most people are like, no, no, I'm fine. I can fix this. I can fix this. You see, the gospel is the gift that offends. It's the gift that offends us. And, and that's why many of us struggle with sharing the gospel because we don't want to offend, especially in this culture where, hey, no, no, you do you. That's fine. Who am I to judge? Don't judge me. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. And so we don't tell anybody the truth. But Jesus came and he offended everybody just about, especially the religious people. He ticked a lot of people off so much to the point that they wanted to, and did kill him. You see, the truth is that you are far more sinful than you realize. You can say, well, okay, I'm not that bad of a person. No, you, you really are. And that's not Gary's opinion. Just read the Bible. Just read what Jesus has to say about us. But there is no good news unless there's bad news, and that's the bad news. But here's the good news. You are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Far more loved than you could ever imagine. Who can you name who was tortured and died for you? Nobody. Only Christ has done that for you because he loved you so much. He hates your sin. He hates it so much that he had to die, but he loves you so much that he was willing to die. And that's the message of Christmas, that Christ came to die for our sins. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord, the Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus died for my sins, that I was that bad, that he had to die to take my place on that cross, that he was buried and buried all my sins there, and that he rose again with life eternal for all who believe. If you will trust in that, make Christ the Lord of your life and put your faith in what he done to Christ, read the letters in red with me. You will be saved. That's the truth of Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the incarnation, the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Thank you that you brought him into this world through the most crooked uh, stick drawn ever possible, and yet the line was perfectly leading to him. So Father, we thank you that you can not only use all these people, Tamar, uh, Bathsheba, David, Abraham, and the list goes on of failures, but Lord, you can use us. We need to add our list name to the list of failures this morning. Father, use us this morning. 
Let us be like Mary. We just say, let it be. We will take whatever life brings us if we're in the center of your will. And Father, I want to pray for those who may not know you. Lord, that they may be religious, but they've never truly ever accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day that they would receive the best gift of all. It may be the most offensive gift of all, but I pray that they receive it because they know that they're a sinner and they know that the only Savior is Christ and that they would give their life to you because you gave your life for them. I pray that they would have the courage to make that decision. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, if you made a decision, I would like to know about it. I would like to tell you about your next steps as a follower of Christ. Maybe you're like, I still have questions, Gary. Great. Let's talk about it. Text me. Even on Christmas Day, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. And as we go into the new year, think about who you know might benefit from hearing this. Uh, a survey was done recently of people who were in a part of a, a churches, and they asked them, how did you get here? And some people were like Google. Some people were like, I got a postcard in mail. And some people, all these different things. 86% a friend invited me. Uh, 86% a friend invited me. So pray about who you could invite this week to join you on New Year's Day. A lot of people make New Year's resolution to include going to church. So maybe the time is right. Also, there's the reading plan on version that goes with where we're at in Genesis as we resume next week. All right, we're going to do question and answer here on Christmas Day. And uh, I asked Kaylin to help me today. So Kaylin, if you'll come up here and help me with that. And actually, the first few questions are from Kaylin. So you get to ask your own questions here. Three questions. I think we have to have a limit there. Man, you think you're the preacher's daughter or something. What does prostitute mean? <laughs> Shows a little innocence there. Um, so that is a woman who sells herself so that men can use her in bad ways. Okay, so that's what prostitute means. It's not a, it's not, it's a, some people call it the oldest profession, uh, whatever. Um, but anyway, it's what women sometimes do out of desperation or sometimes out of greed and sometimes a combination of the two, but it's not a good vocation. What's your next question? That's a good question. Anybody know? I don't know the exact number. The number of questions. No, thank you for, I, I should have her have a microphone. Um, how many kids did David have? I don't remember. Um, probably more than is recorded. Somebody Google that. That'd be a good question. But I, I don't think there's a definitive number. But that's just my theory on it. I just know that, I just know that one of his sons raped a half-sister, Tamar, and and it just got ugly, and he wouldn't do anything about the son, so the other son kills him, and this family just spirals out of control, showing what a poor dad David was. All right, we'll take 19 and a half. Okay, 19 and a half. Uh, all right, so 20 is recorded, of course, with hundreds and hundreds of wives. Probably had more than that, but 20 are recorded. That's interesting. All right, what's the, la what's the other question? I don't know. I know she was six months when she went to go see Elizabeth. So, I don't know. Somebody want to Google that too? I'm o I'm over two this morning. Here we go. Um, over well one for three. Okay. I don't know exactly how many months. Um, it does seem like it happens pretty quickly. Um, when the angel tells her that she's conceived, and then and then David. That it seems like I would say this happened in a matter of weeks, but I don't know that 100% for sure. All right. Go to to one other. I think uh, Triana sent in a question. Lineage. What is the significance of Joseph's lineage? That's a great question. I'll keep going. I'll keep reading. I'm sorry. <laughs> Regards to Jesus' sins, he is not Jesus' biblical or spiritual father. 
great. And so biological or or spiritual. So so some people look at the two lineages of Jesus and say, oh, there's a contradiction. They don't match. No, no. One is tracing Mary's line and one is tracing Joseph's line. You say, wait a minute. Joseph's not bio, Jesus' biological dad. Why does that matter? Well, if you're adopted by someone, do you still not have the same rights as any other child? Caitlin and Isaiah are adopted, but if I die, they have the same rights to my mass fortune as all the other kids. And so um, anyway, uh, so Jesus through his adoptive dad, has same rights. And so he has the biological rights to the throne through Mary. He has the legal right to the throne through Joseph. And so if you trace their genealogy, it actually does this a couple of times where it crosses over. In fact, like with Ruth and Boaz, that's Joseph and Mary are both in that line. And then it crosses again through David, I think, is the two, the two links in the chain there. Um, so yeah, that's why. Great question there, Triana. Any other questions? That's all. That's all for now? Okay. All right, usually as soon as we say that, someone has one come in. Anybody have a question want to raise their hand in person? Amanda? Naomi? No, no, I'm sorry, Boaz's mother. I don't, Google that too. Say, from now on, we're in question and answer, we're just going to have a Google session. <laughs> I don't, actually, I don't know from memory right now. Okay, so it, 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 that would make sense. So I'm sorry, I'm not, was that what it says, Heather? There we go, it's on Google, it must be true. Okay. All right, any other questions? Good job. All right. Well, let's stand and let's pray and we'll be dismissed.